Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Cass, today I am thrilled that we get to talk about one of my favorite things in dressed history, and that is the intersection of fashion and extreme politics or extreme political events. And in particular, um, some of my interests lie in how fashion reacts during periods of war. And this is something that first piqued my interest about 20 years ago or so when I was reading that book on the French Revolution which is called The Gilded Youth of Thermidor, which was written by a French scholar, Francois Gendron. And in this, he discusses the subculture of the jeunesse dorée, or the gilded youth. And many of the participants in this sort of subcultural movement were the Enquiable and the Merveilleuse, which is, of course, a subculture that sprung up in the wake of the revolution. And this subculture is in part defined by dress. So this is a very much an aha moment for me. And it was the very first time that had made this connection, that fashion could be wielded as a political tool. And it would be several years in the future before I would really discover the field of fashion history as an academic pursuit. But indeed, the seed and interest in the connection between fashion and politics had already been planted years prior. Yeah, and dress listeners, we've already done a two-part episode on fashion during the French Revolution. So head all the way back to season one, I believe, to check those out if you haven't already. We've also talked about the intersections of fashion and war during World War One, And I think we did a mini-sode last season on fashion and politics. So, you know, these two seemingly opposite you know, entities are in fact very intimately intertwined. Today, we go back in time to a period of history to look at fashion and dress during the first two decades of the 20th century. So the period between World War I and World War II in Italy. And we are so pleased that Dr. Eugenia Policelli joins us today to discuss her book, Fashion Under Fascism, Beyond the Black Shirt. Dr. Palicelli is a professor of Italian comparative literature and women's studies at both Queens College and the Graduate Center of the City of New York, where she also is the founder and coordinator of the Concentration in Fashion Studies for the CUNY Graduate Program. Dr. Palicelli, thank you so much for joining us today. Dr. Palicelli, thank you so much for joining us today on Dress to discuss your really amazing book, Fashion Under Fascism, Beyond the Black Shirt. So before we delve into some of these fashion aspects of our discussion today, I'm hoping that you might give some context for our listeners about, broadly speaking, what exactly is fascism? 
Thank you, April, for uh, inviting me to this conversation. I'm delighted uh, to be here with you. Uh, so to respond to your question, fascism was an ideology, authoritarian uh, ideology and a movement first that started in Italy. In 1915, so the war certainly was uh, an important uh, component that had a, a great impact on the formation of this uh, fascism uh, of combat. Uh, this was, you know, the beginning. And then in 1919, Mussolini, uh, who was, of course, the head of fascism, became the Duce. So he founded uh, the National uh, Fascist Party. So it started in Italy, but then it spread all over Europe. And in the United States, actually, uh, we need to remember that. Uh, so it was uh, authoritarian, uh, became a, a totalitarian uh, regime, uh, despotic nationalism, racism, imperialism. Uh, so these were kind of key words, uh, uh, but we can delve uh, into it uh, uh, while we uh, discuss uh, uh, the multifaceted and complexity of fascism. In order to contextualize this, we need to understand also the situation in Italy. Mm -hmm. At the time, because in the beginning of the 20th century, Italy went through um, great transformations in terms of uh, modernization, industrial, but also at the same time, a huge uh, uh, immigration, um, the great period from the second half of 19th century in the beginning, many Italians uh, came to the United States, actually, one of the countries of uh, uh, the immigration. Uh, there was a lot of poverty in the South, a big divide between North and South. So the North was very industrialized. Italy was a country that was unified uh, as a nation state only in 1860, uh, started the process of unification. There were unrest from um, workers uh, and unions, uh, movement in the feminist, uh, feminist movement. Also, Italy uh, had a lot of these uh, rallies, political unrest strikes, especially in the north, industrialized uh, north. So then we also had, at the same time, we think of 1909, the first manifesto of, of futurism. Mm -hmm. So we had, uh, uh, you know, the beginning of the 20th century was quite amazing in terms of uh, contrast, political unrest, uh, the beginning of uh, self-awareness uh, from the, worker, the wor workers, uh, uh, factory councils, you know, we have the factory in Milan, you know, the Fiat, uh, the Olivetti, uh, this fact is a very important, the textile industry in the uh, Como area and so forth, a lot of artisans. So, but there was all this political, you know, uh, unrest. So uh, Mussolini and the fascists, they were violent, okay, against, you know, the left, against communism. Think that in 1917, the Soviet, you know, we had the first communist revolution. So it was really a, a, a time, um, very complex uh, uh, and important, uh, I think, 
not only for Italy, but world history. Of course. And so Mussolini and his uh, group uh, um, used violence, and violence was always part of fascism and the right. They burned workers, unions, place, books. You know, there was a lot of, uh, of all this very violent. And also the uh, idea of war, permanent war, was uh, an important uh, principle of fascism that stayed for the regime. You know, the regime started, so Mussolini was then elected after the March on Rome, 1922, and the regime started until 1943. Uh, Mussolini was first uh, voted in the parliament. In the beginning, uh, the parliament in Italy, uh, we had different parties, represent even the communists and the socialists, the republicans, there were many different parties. But in 1924, there was a drastic change in uh, that really became a despotic regime, totalitarian, because one socialist representative, Giacomo Matteotti, uh, uh, in the parliament denounced uh, Mussolini and the fascist, uh, the National Fascist Party, uh, to have rigged the election. Mm. So he was then <laughs> kidnapped. <laughs> Mussolini ordered his kidnap and he was killed. Found a few months later, killed. Uh, and then all the anti-fascist uh, important anti-fascists were either killed or put in prisons. And from then on, all political parties were uh, not legal anymore. So only one party. And that's what fascism is about, is one party, authoritarian uh, regime. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Thank you. If that was an amazing description for any of our listeners who might not be familiar with fascism in general or just like that very precise, you know, couple decades of time in Italy. So um, uh, we are, of course, here today to talk about fashion in the intersection of fascism. And, And you note in your book that you say, I'm quoting you, my focus here is to show how fashion in the Renaissance became a scientia habitus, as well as a political and state affair via the sumptuary laws and literature on appearance clothes and fashion in a way that was entirely similar to how the fascist regime dedicated great energy to regulating the way Italians express themselves in dress in both private and public spheres. So that's a huge span of time. And I'm I'm hoping that you might unpack that a little bit for us, first in terms of the Renaissance. So, So how was fashion being used as a political tool at that time? Thank you uh, for your question. In fact, uh, um, at the time when I um, was writing my book and was doing my research uh, on the book, I was also doing my research in the Renaissance. Uh, and, and as you know, later on, I published a book precisely <laughs> on that topic in 2014. So while I was uh, uh, trying to uh, figure out the relationship between, uh, you know, fashion and politics uh, and the uh, regulation of dress, uh, not only as a personal care or concern, but also how the state, how the political institutions, uh, religious institutions, emanated these laws, I was uh, uh, fascinated by the fact that said, okay, 
this is really the demonstration that fashion is very important, is crucial to study, because it's not just uh, the frivolous uh, uh, aspect uh, that, you know, we like to change dress, so we like a particular color, you know, the way fashion was uh, conceived, it was kind of looked down in the academic field. So for me, that was a tangible result of how fashion was more than that, right? So, because historically, in the Renaissance, uh, and I'm talking about, of course, you know, if we talk, if we think of the history of um, uh, Italian fashion, we have to go back to the Middle Ages and uh, and the artisans, you know, all these leathers, the guilds, you know, all these people that they had this incredible know know how. But it was in the Renaissance, but century law started already in the Middle Ages because preachers and the religions, because people were uh, fascinated, you know, people liked to, to dress, but also there was this trade, you know, trade was developing, not only in Italy, but of course outside, because fashion is always uh, local and global, not only today, always has been. So if we think of the Silk Road, if we think of this textile coming from the Mediterranean and the know-how, the people also working in uh, different cities in Italy uh, and the courts. Uh, so it's very dynamic. So fashion, at some point, become uh, a language. It's textualized in the laws in which, you know, it says, okay, uh, women cannot uh, accept part of their skin, right? Question of modesty, because of uh, a way of controlling femininity in dress. But it was more than dress, it was behavior. So think of also the way uh, women had to cover their head. This was common to any religions, um, uh, Jews, Muslim, Christians. But what happened was then uh, this was uh, starting to be manipulated by individuals, by women themselves, who were creative agents of their own image. And so in fashion, feed that kind of agency. So it was not just the aesthetic, which is already something that is important, but it was more than that, was the politics of style. And this was, of course, uh, seen as a dangerous uh, side. Why? Because, of course, we had the aristocracy, we have to think in terms of class, and then in this period, because of trade, banking, uh, global um, exchanges, uh, many families became very prominent, not just the aristocracy. So, which means uh, that sanctuary laws uh, uh, sometimes wanted to control, aimed at controlling and disciplining the social body. So, for example, there were, were law in the Renaissance in um, some of the material that I've been I was consulting, regulating, for example, the way uh, artisans could dress. For example, they couldn't use velvet because velvet was one of the most expensive fabric that was destined to the kings and queens and princes. So then the idea that an artisan could appear as a king or as a prince was dangerous. <laughs> or the gold uh, um, rings and etc, etc, etc. So that uh, uh, in conjunction with the technological revolution in the Renaissance, a geographical exploration, um, the inventing of the printing press, the production of books, uh, 
widening the public. Uh, so, because we have in history, so and fashion, so that was to me another pattern and important to understand uh, uh, if we studied the you know the long history right of fashion. To see that uh, at that time, fashion became an issue in the sanctuary laws in many different cities in Italy, but also the fact that people didn't follow the law and pay the fines. <laughs> or, for example, <laughs> in the city of Venice, uh, what they did, uh, they emanated the, the, the laws, but Venice, uh, the Serenissima, uh, had a, a central uh, role, not only in politics, but also in the production of wares, you know, the Murano glasses, the silk industry, etc. And so Venice wanted to show off when kings uh, uh, and ambassadors uh, came to the city and they suspended the sanctuary laws because they wanted to show their best <laughs> so this is fascinating it's politics right of it's romantic uh, so this dynamic and uh, accompanying to that the fashion became textualized uh, in books books on conduct uh, and behavior. So fashion for the book of the courtier in, uh, in uh, Baldassare Castiglione, published in 1528, was a political concern, was uh, not uh, just uh, uh, the, the way you appear is a political statement uh, in court. Uh, and so he established the rules of dressing in black or having a certain simplicity, a certain elegance, uh, understated elegance, uh, sprezzatura, he will call it, uh, which is still resonate today. So the link that I found uh, that during fascism, in the project uh, that Mussolini uh, and the fascists uh, wanted to, first of all, nationalize fashion, because there was no uh, institution regulating fashion as it was in Paris. Uh, since the 19th century, there was already an institution Chambre Syndicale de la Couture, etc. didn't exist in Italy. So they had hundreds, you know, of incredible artisans, um, the textile, but all disorganized. So there was no, uh, an, an, not an entity. And this was a, a debate already started in the pre-fascism. In fact, uh, the people involved were <laughs> sympathizers of fascism, but also anti-fascist and socialist like Rosa Genoni. I talked to her, maybe we can talk to her about her later, who was also another person who believed that fashion is central uh, to uh, issues of women, feminism and state. And state. So fascists uh, emanated a series of laws to control the production of uh, uh, fashion, Italian fashion, uh, because they wanted to control the whole production from uh, sketching, uh, the textile industry, the uh, organization of the shows, etc. So the link, uh, and we can talk, uh, I guess, a little bit more in details about this in your, in your other questions. But so the link that I found, uh, it was quite uh, interesting, the fact that fashion was a state affair, was not just something, was an industry. It was an industry able to project uh, um, an image uh, of a country, an identity. Mm-hmm. And so very much was, uh, you know, this kind of connection that to me, and also because there's another thing, the Renaissance uh, uh, in, uh, in Italian uh, history has been also very important from the point of view of the construction of uh, Italian identity or national identity. 
you know, a period, a glorious uh, uh, period, but also a time of crisis. Sometimes, you know, we think of uh, a political treaties like Machiavelli, the Prince, or Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo. So there, there's a lot of... Uh, so then that period was always seen uh, as being, even in the post-war, again, as a, as a moment uh, in which, you know, Italians excelled. <laughs> <laughs> were able to, because there was this kind of uh, uh, lack of trust in themselves, because at that time, Italian fashion was not on the map. And these people sometimes, you know, forget about this part, it was not on the map uh, yet. Yeah, and, and that's actually something that I kind of wanted to, to chat with you about is, you know, obviously at this time, and we've talked about this so many times on Dress before, I'm not even going to go there because our regular listeners already know this, but, you know, France was really this global arbiter of style at the time, and they were really kind of pushing fashion forward. So I guess my question to you is, you know, what kind of was the relationship between French and Italian fashion before Mussolini's rise to power? And, and did that change with the rise of his regime and this emphasis on establishing national dress? Relationship with France, uh, between France and Italy, are very uh, complex and complicated, but always there somewhere. You know, even before, we have to go back, uh, <laughs> you know, okay. Hundreds of years. <laughs> But 19th century, for example, it's important because, you know, in the 19th century, uh, we, we have uh, Italian magazines. So, as you know, also in this period from the 18th century onwards, they started, you know, in, you know magazines in which women uh, wrote. And so that's a, a particular phenomenon. But... Mm, but not uh, very well known because always, you know, you, you talk about France and England, etc. But uh, the Italian history is quite uh, interesting in that respect because they had uh, a lot of women uh, who uh, participated and actually founded Dame, then Margherita and other uh, magazines in which they, again, they were uh, posing the question of fashion and politics, uh, national identity, and freedom from France because there was always this kind of, you know, kind of imitation competition because France and Paris established itself as the capital of fashion and modernity and so forth. And so they try, uh, it was a, really a, a moment of reflection to see how this kind of relationship and how an independent way of thinking and of fashion existed. And there are examples, in fact, in the Italian manufacturing industry at the time, in terms of, you know, the production of certain kind of velvet, certain kind of manufacturing in the South, and also the patriotic, you know, to link fashion with patriotic attire, very, very important. And then later on, uh, I just moved, you know, a little bit uh, <laughs> in the beginning of the 20th century. So we have two, two important uh, things uh, that I would like for us to consider, and also that they will be very much in relation to fascism later. So one is uh, the uh, experimentation uh, the important uh, avant-garde movement of futurist, mm -hmm. because the fu futurism uh, was very, very, very uh, central 
in this uh, renovating. They wanted to reconstruct the universe, right? The arts, uh, everything, not uh, sculpture, um, industrial design, and so forth. And indeed, fashion was part of this as well, because they wrote manifestos. Giacomo Balla wrote, actually, a manifesto of the anti-neutral suit because they were for the war because there was all this debate of being for World War I or, or not. So they were for the war as the fascists and other groups. So, but the, the manifesto is quite uh, uh, fascinating because it's not just, uh, yes, the idea of the war, but it's also this reconceptualization of uh, the, the male suit and masculinity using colors. And the other one I would like to mention, there are many examples uh, here, but um, uh, Tayat, uh, um, Ernesto Michaelis, was uh, to me a genius. And worked with Vionne for many, many years. Exactly. In fact, he worked in, he was the only one who actually uh, uh, worked in the fashion industry. Tayata. The other one, Balla, produces dress and textile. Uh, he did it. Uh, and some of uh, his creations uh, are now in the Laura Biagiotti Foundation and Archive in Rome. They have been bought. And also he created in Rome his studio where with his, with his uh, daughters, uh, they, they crafted, you know, dress. It was fantastic. You know, some of them are so modern, female and male. The other one, the other, I said, uh, Tayat, he designed the logo uh, of Madeleine Vionnet and then some sketches uh, for sure, you know, he kind of was there. But he did something that to me was genial. Uh, the tuta, first of all, that was different from the constructivist in Russia because he saw it as a, not just for work. It was this, uh, this uh, notion of simplicity, of unisex, uh, of elegance, because he put the belt with a bow. And the little sandals he pairs with it, that is like that little detail that just... It's, <laughs> so it's fantastic. But also he had this, uh, the tuta as a concept, uh, is a zero waste. That's what it is. If you see the, you know, he did the, so the, the, the concept was very, very innovative that very people couldn't understand then really, you know, was, was too <laughs> far in advance. But also there is another thing, the color of the shirts, because Tayat ordered a particular uh, in Florence um, because he didn't want the, the rigid, uh, you know, masculine uh, uh, the color shirt, just I think it's, it's genius, it's fantastic because he wanted the, the soft one because he wanted a different kind of masculinity, a different kind of so. So, there's very contradictory, if you wish, uh, from the kind of virility if you think of fascism, but they were sympathizers of you know of fascism, so it's very complex. So, then the futurist, uh, and then we have, of course, De Pero. And so had so many other artists uh, that uh, they, they did uh, work for Vogue. Also, they, they he designed some uh, uh, covers for Vogue America because he came also uh, to New York. So international, cosmopolitan, very avant-garde, and connected to the European avant-garde, Russian, uh, French surrealism, uh, and so forth. On the other hand, we had. Uh, other uh, projects, uh, like the project of Rosa Genoni, who was a seamstress, uh, 
started from zero, really. She was very poor uh, in Milano, etc. I wrote a book about her. And she really was the one who started to think of this made in Italy, you know, Italian pr- uh, being proud of their own roots, advocating for an Italian fashion because she was in France and in Paris and she saw how they worked. And she said, we need to understand uh, and study our roots. Uh, our, uh, In fact, she also taught uh, uh, there were no schools in Italy at that time, you know, that teaches really fashion or costume design. There were no schools. So she did it for workers in Milan in the evening. And she was fascinating. It was absolutely genial what she did in putting together material from the arts because her fashion was part of manifestation uh, of the arts, was not uh, um, divorced by it. So then all that, but she thought of an Italian fashion, she thought of an Italian institution. So in a way, Mussolini used her own ideas <laughs> to, to create. But, but, but Genoni um, uh, was uh, focusing especially on the feminine, uh, the female body, the liberation of women, workers also. Uh, she was a socialist and she was uh, also under the regime, you know, under the control. They, 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 and she was a pacifist. Which did not fly well, I'm sure, with Mussolini. No, absolutely <laughs> not. I found material, you know, in the archive that the police, you know, and everything. So she was not. But she was. These are the two kind of major lines because she wanted to use, you know, the artisanal, the craftsmanship, the Italian tradition, the Renaissance. In fact, she... she um, Uh, got a a first uh, prix in 1906 uh, in the uh, exhibition, the Universal Exhibition in Milan, uh, where she presented uh, her dress, uh, the Primavera dress, uh, inspired from a Botticelli, you know, uh, spring, beautiful painting. The dress is in the Galleria del Costume in Florence and is absolutely a masterpiece. So that, but then she was also modern because she was thinking of uh, women being able to move freely uh, in the modern life, you know, go on a bike or uh, going to... So department stores were in Italy at that time. Milan was really important uh, center. So there were all these things were already there. In, in the pre-fascist and also in the debate of uh, uh, on nationalism, if you if you wish, you know, and how fashion had to be part of this project of nation building, clearly as that, and she says it very clear in her writings, and how feminism, <laughs> you know, she 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 even says feminism is part of fashion. So she was writing this in the beginning of the twentieth century. And, and they and they kind of like took her ideas, those seeds that she had already planted, and just ran with it. Absolutely, yes. One of the things that I found incredibly fascinating about your book was this official government push to eliminate French fashion terms from the Italian language, which was all part of that kind of like nationalization of fashion. Can you tell us a little bit about Cesare Meno's? Am I saying that right, Meno? Cesare Meano. 
Cesare Meano. <laughs> Too many vowels. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about his creation of an Italian dictionary of fashion? I had never heard of this and I was like, whoa. Yes. Uh, again, this, this project of nationalization, you know, of fashion uh, went in many different directions. It was also in the direction that the language of fashion was French, because also the terminology, I would say, the language of fashion in general, meaning uh, perceiving uh, Paris as the capital, but also in terms of lexicon, uh, you know, words, um, defining textile and also a model, you know, palto, tailleur, you know, all these words, they were French, you know, they didn't use it. So, so the idea, this went parallel to the process of nationalization of Italian language also during fascism, eliminating the dialects. So they wanted to, you know, uh, standardize. Uh, and so they gave the task to this uh, journalist, to uh, Cesare Meano, to compile a dictionary <laughs> and commentary no small task. <laughs> no small task. I mean, but it's, uh, and, and when I was doing my research, um, I found it mentioned here and there. And then when I went to read it carefully, it's 400 pages uh, with different entries. Uh, I found a very fascinating uh, text uh, because you could really see uh, there uh, the ideology and the way uh, also, in a way, what Roland Barthes uh, had done uh, with his work in the fashion system and uh, the many articles he wrote on the formation of a discourse, right, uh, of fashion, uh, it's, it's, it's important text because then you understand uh, uh, also that language is materialized, it's important because fashion without the discourse, doesn't fly. Uh, so you can have a beautiful design, but if you don't present it and you don't you communicate it in, in a way that uh, has a certain narrative, if you wish, mm -hmm. you, you, it stays there, almost in this inertia, uh, Bart would say. So that to me, that was very in, in interesting to see how he decides on the different entries, uh, you know. But it also was, uh, uh, for me, in interesting to see the motivation and the explanation for each entry, how he digs into uh, the Italian literature or, or for example, Italian culture or stereotypes, for example, how the codes, the moral codes and the codes of beauty are subject to change in society. So for example, being tanned, so that was something connected to sport, dynamism and modernity that also fascists, you know, wanted to support on one end and then on the other also the tradition, but that's another story. Uh, having a tan body was was good. And he says, oh, you remember in the 19th century when, you know, these uh, women, you know, this figure of pale and the little um, uh, umbrella, and, and, and it's a passé. It's something that is not, <laughs> is not modern, not modern yes. anymore. But they condemned the garçon, the maschietta, they call it. They condemned the woman that was too independent, uh, too, you know. Um, so they, they said, okay, that is not completely accepted. 
uh, or for example, what is also was interesting to me to see the contradictions and this maybe will lead to talk uh, in another, you know, the contradiction of fascism. So for example, the uh, camicia nera, the black shirt, uh, doesn't exist there. How come? <laughs> you know, or it doesn't talk about the civil uniforms that were so part of fascist uh, aesthetics even and politics uh, and discipline of the social body, different age and gender, etc. That they don't have those entries. That's uh, really interesting. And so those kind of missing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to corroborate that with other sources in order to analyze this tensional relationship that was never solved uh, during fascism Mm. between the idea of uh, creating an image of modernity, right? Dynamic, uh, new. Uh, So uh, Mussolini wanted to create new Italians, a new Italy, right? In his opinion, a break needed to be established between the past and the present fascist. If you go to Rome, uh, you see uh, plaques and monuments in which, you know, anno uno, so year one is 1922. Mm. And several publications because they wanted to change the clock, right? And this is really something, this is an interesting parallel to during the French Revolution. The Convention Nationale did the exact same thing. You know, when we see fashion magazines from the 1790s and into the early parts of the 19th century, you oftentimes have to jump online and convert it because it's not even a 12-month correlation. Not only are the names of the quote-unquote months different, but the the amount of days. So it's it's entire overhaul of the industry. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. I was talking about this, the contradictions. Mm, Yes. Uh, And I think that is important to understand about the complexity and the multi-layered facet of the regime uh, in relation to to, to fashion. And what I mean is, uh, uh, this is in many fields, but uh, in terms of fashion, uh, it is very important for me. It is crucial because these tensions uh, uh, between uh, establishing establishment of uh, um, a uniform, right, a style. No government before Mussolini had been able to have that kind of image. That still today, right? We have this: uh, the black shirt is the fascist. Uh, uniform you know Mussolini always presented himself right and then the uh, project of creating uniforms for children starting when they were infants uh, you know toddlers until you know later different age group different women different men they had to dress with in a certain way with their civil uniforms when they went to rallies and parades uh this choreographic uh, uh scene right and just that picture of like a sea of uniformity right and these are not military uniforms these are civilian uniforms so on the one end this uh, project of uniforming right the she styles the masses, right? While on the other, 
the bourgeois, I mean, the, the variety of fashion, the incredible experimentation that went during fascism because of this uh, artisan, because of this artist, uh, illustrators, photographers, filmmakers, uh, that they did an incredible work. And there was not really at the same, you know, there were two different levels, right? So on the one hand, this uniformity, on the other, the variety and the individualism, if you wish, you know, of uh, fashion, creativity, and so forth. So these two tensions never really solved, they were never solved. And they were never solved, even in the way fascism saw women, for example, because women, on the one hand, you had the athletic body, very, you know, and this you see in rallies. I have consulted, uh, of course, uh, cinema. Uh, and I do uh, want to talk about that more. <laughs> in fact, this is important for fashion. This is absolutely crucial. And uh, and then magazines, in these magazines, right? Uh, and then also because uh, during fascism, you had a school of, you know, for men uh, teaching sports, but also for women, he did it. So they had this, and they had uniform. They also had uniforms. <laughs> So, um, it, for different sports. So, it had this uh, a sense of aesthetics, right? So, the sense of, and while on the other, you see also the prolific mother, you know, the way that women, you know, uh, had to be not so skinny, giving birth to many children. And, and, and you see that in the magazines as well. It's like an archetype, kind of, that, that they're competing with each other. They, they went kind of running, you know, parallel because you see also the uh, incredible activity of uh, women uh, journalists, uh, women writers uh, writing for the magazines uh, and in uh, the cinema, uh, cinema uh, industry, uh, costume designers uh, for the first time because, you know, cinema and fashion were absolutely, at, at the time of fascism, they started to synchronize themselves. Because before, when we talk about before fascism, cinema was very, very important globally, Italian cinema, the silent cinema. It had a golden age. Uh, the divas, Italian divas, uh, were international uh, icons. Uh, I discussed this in another book uh, I wrote on Italian style and uh, fashion and cinema. But during fascism, they went on the same, uh, so they, they synchronized because of the creation uh, of the, cine, the School of Cinematography, mm-hmm. uh, Cinecittà, uh, Cinelandia, so the city of cinema, <laughs> uh, literally. There was the studios, it was, they were the biggest studios in Europe. Uh, the was uh, um, in the slogan that Mussolini in the inauguration of Cinecittà in 1937, it says uh, cinema is the most powerful of weapons. Mm-hmm. They embrace the media, they use, you know, the media, but differently from Germany, for example, this is quite interesting, uh, is cinema during uh, fascism, the propaganda, uh, there were very few, maybe four or five. All the rest was entertainment, international figures teaching in the School of Cinematography, and the creation, and this is crucial for fashion, uh, the luce, the newsreels. So this was an institution to educate. Mm-hmm. And then they, they produced short films. Uh, they started, uh, it was found in 1924. 
and then developed and received cinema and luce the newsreel we archived they are in rome now they are digitized it's fantastic uh, material a lot of uh, money from the state and the newsreel are so important and very important when i was doing the research uh, for my book because i wanted to see you know different sources to give me a sense uh, of the way you know uh, f- fashion was constructed uh, uh, also from as a media uh, you know during um, uh, during fascism and uh, the newsreel in, uh, are, are so important because they are fashion shows. Uh, they, they, in my opinion, because some of them are very experimental, they're not just a document of the fashion of the time, so in which you really see this glamour, you know, these beautiful dresses that, again, they have nothing to do with the other side. Right. right? Uh, And uh, very international. And then there are many different cities. They have uh, a lot of uh, uh, fashion shows and events um, in many Italian cities. So fascism chose Turin as the capital of fashion, which is, you know, quite interesting. Not Rome, but Turin. So, because maybe it was close to Paris, perhaps. And then you see all these uh, incredible images of Italian cities uh, at the time. Models, you know, that they were very thin. Which is, again, another contradiction. (laughs) There's a lot of interesting, so this kind of cosmopolitan, so this idea of uh, creating, uh, uh, so using fashion to create also uh, an image for Italians to recognize themselves, but also an image of Italy abroad. So in this way, fashion uh, offers a concrete example of of those tensions. So that's why fashion... Uh, in my view, is important to study at the time. And then there's more work uh, to be done. I am in progress of doing more work on it. But the uh, why? Because really he offered a concrete, again, materializes those tensions. You can see them embodied, you know, on screen, uh, in the pages, uh, all this uh, kind of conflictual relationship, you know, with the construction of gender, uh, sexuality. And you see this in films uh, as well. And in the newsreels are sort of uh, uh, precursors of what, uh, you know, we have like fashion films because they are micro-narratives, uh, uh, in creating, for example, there are some uh, newsreel that I have seen uh, in which there is an experimentation of the camera. So they say, okay, this is the way fashion should be filmed. Uh, and then they use certain technique. So it was also a way because cinema at that time was not so old. You know, if you think about it, 1895, 1930 was at the beginning, kind of. So uh, filming fashion was also a way of experimenting with uh, the act of filming, the act of telling a story. And parallel to that, we, we must remember that uh, because of the School of Cinematography, this is the first time that we have the uh, creation of a professional figure of a costume designer. Uh-huh. They didn't exist. In, in the US, uh, uh, started in 1920s, uh, the 
recognition of this professional figure, which is very important in the creation of, uh, of film and the manufacturing. So in the School of Cinematography, students learn how to make costumes. And we think of uh, Gino Carlo Sensani was one of the major teacher and uh, um, costume designer with an art uh, uh, background. Uh, and his um, collaborator was uh, um, Maria de Matteis, who was uh, the mentor of Tosi. Piero Tosi collaborated with Luchino Visconti. So, yeah, it is important uh, to, to, to take into consideration the fact of, the, of these uh, innovators, cultural innovators, uh, as uh, the historian Littleton has called, you know, these people, these artists that they were uh, operating, you know, and, and working during, this, uh, the, during the, the, the regime. So these are other contradictions uh, because, you know, uh, you have this incredible experimentation Film uh, directors, you know, some of the films, even entertainment film, are really, really masterpieces uh, and need to be studied. Uh, and I think they need to be translated, subtitled. You know, that's an, another uh, thing in order to see uh, the creativity of some people like Alessandro uh, Blasetti, but also Vittorio De Sica. Michelangelo Antonioni was writing, was a writer during uh, uh, fascism in several journals. Uh, we must remember also that uh, in Venice, uh, the, the first film festival, 1932. Wow. Uh, <sighs> according to the Biennale, you know, it was already the Biennale delle Arti, but this, uh, in 1932 was the, the year in which the first film festival in the world, actually. So, and it was also international. So it is interesting also to see in this kind of tensions that uh, this, this cosmopolitanism at the same time of nationalism, because uh, you have uh, international figures uh, uh, teaching at the, the School of Cinematography. Uh, you had uh, uh, collaboration also with the US. Eh? There was a lot of uh, all these filmmakers were able to see uh, even Soviet cinema uh, Hollywood, uh, everything, basically. And so that uh, is, it is important, I think, to take into consideration all these uh, important aspects. Uh, and so cinema uh, was able to um, really project, uh, along with uh, periodicals uh, and magazines, uh, this uh, art, you know, the art of costuming, uh, they started to uh, talk about, you know, um, set design and decoration. You know, there was a debate in different uh, magazines about that as well, and architecture. And that continued even, uh, even uh, during the war. So, and think of, uh, I just want to mention, you know, uh, the... Uh, there are many films like Contessa di Parma by Blasetti, Grandi Magazzini, Department Stores, uh, uh, it's called, um, by Camerini. Camerini uh, did other comedies that they were really, really, you know, great uh, uh, films and documenting also this uh, uh, creation of new um, femininity 
uh, new models of femininity, uh, women who work uh, in department stores or uh, as models or in uh, fashion houses uh, and so forth. Similarly, also you have in Hollywood a lot of, uh, in the 30s, uh, several films uh, documenting uh, those kind of uh, uh, environments. In the book, in fact, I compare the film by Blasetti, uh, Contessa di Parma, set in Turin in 1937, to an American film uh, by William Sider, uh, Roberta, uh, with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, uh, which is, you know, uh, very interesting to, to see the way also in that film fashion is used uh, uh, to present a, a new national identity an American identity and an American fashion. Yeah, and there's a lot of parallels there between that push to kind of like untether yourself um, nationally from the, you know, from Paris. Absolutely, yes. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. So one last question I have for you, and this is really fascinating because we have quite a lot of, surprisingly, Polish fashion magazines at FIT Special Collections that were produced at the time when they were under Nazi occupation. And you have noted in your book that sometimes shop windows in Italy would incorporate um, either images or like really specific direct references to Mussolini in their window displays. And this is actually something that I've seen in both German and Polish fashion magazines that were produced under the Nazi regime. Not only do we see images in the fashion magazines of Hitler, but also kind of more like regional or national leaders in the case of Poland. And I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on the significance of these really specific direct references to political leaders in that fashion sphere. Yeah, thank you. It would be interesting to to see this magazine. You, you are welcome well, anytime. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you for mentioning this. It's quite a, a good question. I think it has to do uh, some of the uh, with the cult of the of the leader, the cult of the duce, 
And so, so in a way, it was uh, seen as the embodiment uh, of this new nation, hmm? the way, you know, uh, the fascist uh, nation. And I think uh, in the case of Mussolini, Mussolini and the Italian fascists were very much also concerned with with idea of aesthetics and style uh, in connection with politics. And also, I think, the idea of um, almost being um, in love with, uh, with, with Duce. And this has happened. For example, there is a film by Ettore Scola called A Special Day with Sofia Loren and Marcello Mastroianni, in which we see, for instance, uh, it's a one day in Rome when Hitler visited uh, um, officially, the official visit of, of Hitler to Mussolini. And the film, uh, um, it, it is very, uh, it's a beautiful film, but one of the things that connects to your question is that uh, uh, the uh, female character, she is a, a housewife, Sofia Loren, and she describes the fact that she's uh, almost in, you know, in love, in adoration of the figure of uh, the Duce. And so the fact uh, uh, that this uh, uh, presence of the Duce in your life, uh, in every day, in the way you think, the way you dress, the way you salute, you know, because they change, the way you walk. I remember my mother, uh, who grew up uh, during fashion, uh, telling me, were told, um, the way they had to walk, uh, the way they had to, to direct their gaze, mm. uh, because he said, the Duce is looking at you, so you have to perform in a way. You have to walk the way. Oh, yeah. Uh, so that's the, so uh, to be erected in your uh, uh, posture, like a militaresque mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of, uh, and I think uh, the 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 idea of incorporating uh, because the duce had to be everywhere basically, leisure time, shopping. Uh, so it's like that uh, uh, you uh, were embracing the nation. You know, you were embracing the values. Especially for Italy, I would say was part of this uh, project uh, of uh, um, intimate connection, emotional connection uh, with the figure of the Duce. Right, right. Well, and of course, the war actually, World War II, would be the undoing of Mussolini's dictatorship. He was actually removed from power by his own council in July of 1943. And that kind of brings a, a little bit of a close to this chapter of fashion history that we've been speaking about today. But um, Dr. Palatelli, I'm, I'm curious as to your thoughts as to if the government's efforts to kind of direct and unify the Italian fashion industry, were they successful under fascism? And what is the legacy of that particular era in terms of Italian fashion today? Okay, so I uh, let me uh, try to go in order here. Uh, 
1943, of course, was uh, um, a very tragic uh, moment in which, uh, yes, Mussolini was arrested, but then uh, freed, you know, Italy, uh, Hitler took him and brought it to the north of Italy and they uh, had the Salò Republic, you know, the, the social uh, republic. So it was a tragic moment uh, for Italian history. And the American ally later, you know, in Sicily, the German occupation, it was an incredible period. And yet, uh, you had, during that time, publications, which is kind of incredible if you think about it, you know. Uh, we had, uh, uh, the, the, there were publications, um, uh, one magazine especially I want to mention is called Bellezza Beauty, that was the mouthpiece of the regime. But is uh, is uh, <laughs> saw the one of the creative uh, the artistic creator of the of the magazines was Joe Ponti, an architect, uh, an artist. Uh, he advocated, uh, I mean, and also in the post-war, one of the most important uh, uh, designers uh, for you know for for uh, for Italy. Uh, and he saw fashion as part of the arts, you know, and the Italian style of living. So this project uh, was more than, uh, he then had some troubles, you know, with the magazine itself. But it is interesting to see the fact that uh, many people really uh, uh, wanted to embrace this idea of uh, let the world know about the richness of Italian history, but not... Uh, necessarily identified with the nationalistic project because in fact that project failed as you know in a way the sumptuary laws uh, failed <laughs> human nature <laughs> for example ferragamo salvatore ferragamo to return from the united states in 1927 established his business in florence uh, there were certain documents that I consulted that they were never published. They were in proofs, you know, just uh, uh, because the war uh, broke up. But one of them, Ferragamo, he said that uh, nationalism is uh, anathema for, you know, the creativity in fashion. Because this idea of closing yourself in <laughs> your own uh, kind of, you know, you really need to open up, embrace and understanding in wider uh, kind of context. And Ferragamo was one of the most inventive, right? Because he created incredible shoes, right? With poor material, uh, which even today, for example, the Ferragamo Museum in Florence. And this is the legacy, you see the legacy. So the le what is the legacy? The legacy is, first of all, that the made in Italy and Italian style you know, whenever you, you, you see the history of Italian fashion, they start, okay, 1951, Florence, uh, Giorgini. Actually, this year is 70 years, right, from, from that. Uh, so the thing is, I'm more complicated than that because, because, of course, you know, they couldn't just come out like that. Without a, a, without all this history, without all these different uh, experimentation and attempts, the the other thing is that uh, Italy is a fragmented uh, kind of a fragmented. Uh, but instead of fragmented, I would like to use uh, the word uh, is polycenters. <laughs> you know, in Italy, the thing is, and that's 
in a way, also make us understand uh, that we cannot use the same paradigm uh, in the history of fashion in general. If we use the history of fashion, French fashion is not the same of Italian fashion. We have to change paradigm because otherwise we don't understand. And what do I mean by that? Do I mean by that? Is that uh, the uh, plurality of centers in Italy, the cities? And regional specialties. It's a specialty. It's not a weak identity. In my view, that is a strong identity. It's not only strong, but it's also uh, the uniqueness of Italy. That is not France. Let's face it. Uh, so, and so we cannot use the same model as one size fits all in order to understand the relation between fashion, modernity, and modernism. Otherwise, we will miss, you know, the different experimentations, and I use Italy as a model, but could be applied to other countries. You know, in fact, it is interesting that more publications are coming out of countries like Poland, uh, Czechos- you know, uh, Eastern, the Eastern, and, and so forth, that to, to make us understand that uh, fashion was an issue also in other countries that maybe you don't, you didn't think about it, mm-hmm. or you didn't know, we simply didn't know. The idea in, in principle is like uh, that we have to deconstruct uh, uh, the idea of uh, Western exceptionalism, European exceptionalism, Parisian exceptionalism, because if we don't do that, uh, we don't understand that kind of phenomenon. So the legacy is the fact that there were many creative people, like Ferragamo, for example. Gucci already started in 1921. Industrial, you know, the Snia Viscosa producing Ryan. These were big industries. They were instrumental also for the launch. And then all these different sartorie that were already established and then they developed uh, later on. So this, the creativity, I would say, the know-how, the craftsmanship, but this was independent from the, the, the policies of the regime because these people were already highly skilled and highly creative. What is another aspect that I would say the legacy is the fact that uh, even uh, it is important, the nationalization. So the fact that each country, and we know that as a fact, uh, so there is the importance that the state uh, is involved in the fashion industry, in promoting uh, and all that. And I think that uh, is what fascism did for his own ends, of course, but but was not done before in Italy. And there is a legacy there. I mean, that then later on, of course, we have the Camera Nazionale della Moda and other institutions. Uh, and the difficulty sometimes of this plurality, that's another aspect in Italy, uh, of regionalism and individualism, you know, which is another, I would say, you know, another part of the Italian uh, character uh, that could be a beauty, you know, uh, but could be also a beast because sometimes (laughs) you are not, (laughs) you know, you're kind of, you want to do your own, uh, your own thing or say, oh, well, you know, Milano is better than Rome. Then Rome will say, no, Rome is better than Milano. (laughs) And and so these kind of things. But uh, I think, uh, um, I hope I have answered your question. Yes. uh, The legacy. Yes. 
So we need to study. What I, what I mean is that we need to study different periods, of course, and uh, for, for Italian, in order to understand uh, uh, Italian history, but Italian, the history of Italian fashion, you cannot start uh, in the post-war. You know, you have to really delve in depth in uh, other, and as, as for other countries, uh, of course, uh, uh, then the material to be translated, you know, that's very important task for fashion historians and scholars, because otherwise we will have only one narrative and that's not possible anymore. Right. And, and this is why we always say that, like, we could literally make this podcast until the end of time, because it, there is so much work still to be done for all of us. And, you know, I started out my career as an academic, as an art historian. And then once I kind of discovered that fashion studies, and especially fashion history, was even an option, I was so attracted to it because of that wide open space in terms of, like, you're not going to be, like, this 78th person writing on a particular topic. Like sometimes you are in art history because it's so been canonized for so long, but that's really one of the things that I love about what we do, that there's so much room to just keep going. I cannot agree more with you. <laughs> my passion <laughs> since I was in graduate school in Italian, doing Italian studies, and uh, I cannot agree with you more. Uh, this is really the richness of this uh, field of study that deserves more and more to be acknowledged everywhere. Absolutely. Dr. Palatelli, thank you so much for joining us today. This was fascinating. Our regular listeners will know this episode is right up my alley with my special interest at the intersection of like war, fashion, these periods of crisis. So this was very enlightening. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was an honor to be part of your podcast. Thank you. Dr. Palicelli, thank you for sharing your work on this incredibly interesting period of Italian fashion and dress history with us today. And April, her point is well taken in terms of translating primary sources to other languages to open up topics to scholars in other countries who might not speak a particular language. And I, this is something we've definitely run into on more than a few occasions on topics that we wanted to cover on dress. A few times our research has come to a halt on things actually when we might find the best sources to only be in another language like Japanese or Russian, etc. Yeah, absolutely. But this does have an upside because this does make way for us to reach out to our colleagues around the world who are native speakers and to chat with them about their specific research on fashion history of whatever part of this great blue planet they might happen to reside. There's a lot of us out there now. And, and I'm just going to say it again. This really is one of my very favorite parts of making the show. You know, learning from our fellow researchers and colleagues and being able to share their unique knowledge with our audience. I think that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider where the power resides in your closet next time you get dressed. Please join us this Thursday for our next episode. And we do love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us with a question or an episode suggestion, you can email us at dress at iheartmedia.com. And you can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is where we post images to accompany each week's episode. Thank you as always to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you on Thursday.
Dress, The History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.